I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 8th, 2018. Coming up, part two of our graduation special edition, where we talk to recent or soon-to-be recent PhD science students about their thesis work and what the future has in store for them. First, we begin with an event for your science calendar. This Thursday evening, May 10th, Denver's Café Scientifique will host a presentation titled Near-Earth Space, the Once and Future Frontier. The speaker is Mark Golkowski from the Department of Electrical Engineering at the University of Colorado, Denver. Dr. Golkowski will talk about how the space around our planet is used for new technologies and is more accessible than it has ever been before. At the same time, the fundamental physical processes of this region and its dynamic nature are still not fully understood. A key feature of this environment is that matter is in the plasma state and supports complex interaction with electromagnetic waves. You want to know what that all means? Well, the presentation will give a background on the process in the near-Earth space environment and how they affect technology systems in space and on the ground. Everyone is welcome to these Cafe Psy presentations and discussions, which take place at the Blake Street Tavern in Denver, close to Coors Field. The talk starts at 6.30 this Thursday night and ends around 8 p.m. Come before 6 and leave yourself time to get something to eat. It is springtime in Boulder, meaning rain, snow, sun, blossoming flowers, budding trees, allergies, and graduation. The University of Colorado at Boulder is holding its graduation ceremony this Thursday, May 10th, at 8.30 a.m. in Folsom Stadium. So, Today's edition of How on Earth is the second of our two-part annual graduation special. It is a celebration of young scientists and engineers who have gone the extra mile and the extra four or five or more years beyond their undergraduate degrees by continuing their studies in graduate school. We have three graduate students who are getting their PhDs either this semester or later this year, and they have joined us to talk about their thesis research, their grad school experiences, and perhaps what they have planned next. So I will let each of them introduce themselves and the title of their thesis, and we'll go from there. So Hyunju, let's start with you. Hello, I'm Hyunju. Um, I'm finishing up my PhD now at the Atlas Institute of Seoul Border. My PhD uh, thesis title is Computational Design Tools and Techniques for Paper Mechatronics. Thank you. And next? My name is Nathan Parrish, and I'm in the Smead Aerospace Engineering Sciences Department. My thesis title is Low Thrust Trajectory Optimization in Cislunar and Translunar Space. All right. Well... We'll decode that in a few minutes here. 
And next. Hi, good morning. My name is Diana Perry. I'm at Stockholm University, the Department of Ecology, Environment, and Plant Sciences. My thesis title is Swedish Seagrass Ecosystems in a Changing Climate, Coastal Connectivity, and Global Change Sensitivity. Well, excellent. Thank you very much. Thank all three of you for being on this show. So, like I said, we're going to decode. We're going to break down what those thesis titles mean. So, Hyunju, let's start with you. You were computational design tools and techniques for paper mechatronics. <laughs> All right, a few words there. I don't know. Can you explain <laughs> what that is? Yeah, sure. I develop computational design tools and techniques to support beginner designers to build their own versions of paper mechatronics models. Paper mechatronics is our term to refer a new design medium combining traditional paper crafting with mechanical, electrical, and computation components. And because it's a, such a young medium, um, it includes a lot of um, challenges, um, although it that means it also has a lot of potential. So by building tools and techniques to support beginners, we would like to invite more participants to explore this medium. Paper mechatronics, I, I'm thinking of some kind of advanced origami here. Uh, can <laughs> sure. you give me a little more detail? What what are you actually building and what is the engineering aspect of this? Sure. Um, so we use paper because paper is very accessible medium mentally and um, technically. What that means is paper is, you know, lightweight, inexpensive and everywhere. So we use paper for low cost rapid prototyping in um, many purposes. So when we use paper, it is technically accessible. And because of that, it lowers our mental burden. Everyone feel like, even young children feel like they can build things with paper, just like folding paper, right, origami. And using paper lowers their mental burdens so that we can invite, the, what's the next challenges, like a more mechanical engineering aspects and electrical engineering, computational engineering aspects based on the paper crafting aspect. Paper is kind of the entry drug to engineering exactly, here. This exactly. Is, yeah, because it's, it's a familiar mm -hmm. material. Mm -hmm. and, and like you said, it's a great way to get kids involved in the engineering aspect, spatial <laughs> thinking and reasoning. I believe in your thesis, you also talked about adding or embedding um, electronics yeah. into the paper. So what does that mean? Currently in the web, it, everything is possible. So in the papermac.net website, um, anyone can decide what movement they want to explore, like mechanical movement, and design their own mechanical movement by customizing parameters. And once they finish their um, mechanical design, they can download the parts as PDF file and cut the file um, using whatever printer they have and assemble those parts, the system-generated part, build, to build things that move. And then uh, following our instructions, they embed servo motors and program servo motors so that at the end of it, they build, let's say, um, paper robot kind of models that they designed. I like the idea of a paper robot here. <laughs> I'm envisioning a paper robot here. It's like, oh, that one's not working. Fold it up, throw it away, get another one to serve me dinner or something. What are some other examples of some things, whether they have the additional moving components or not, that you build? Sure. 
So let's say they can choose uh, one of the uh, movement modules my simulator in the web provides is open close movement. So they can choose open close movement based on let's say a rack and pinion. It can be a crank and it can be um, like camp. But let's say they all choose rack and pinion based open close movement. And at the end of the activity in my workshop, some students developed it as a flying bird. Some people developed it as Venus flytrap, right? So they uh, interpret that open-close movement in their own a variety of fun ways. That's sure. how I designed the activity. Well, th- it, it sounds like a really great educational tool. Yeah. Do you envision uh, seeing this as a prototyping tool for professionals, for example? Do you think it could get to that point? It's a cheap way, maybe, to do some prototyping. I'll be super excited um, if I can really reach out to that level. In my PhD study, I'm more focused on really uh, beginner designers who are not trained nor confident in um, building and design and making. But uh, recently, I started realizing that some some professionals also can use it to build something more advanced model. So I'm looking forward to that probably after I graduate. <laughs> uh, just one more question here. What led you to this? Was this something you had in mind when you started grad school? or um, I'm from art background, and um, Theo Janssen, probably a lot of you would know, uh, um, Theo Janssen um, was my hero artist, one of the mm-hmm. uh, one of the definitely heroes. And then, though, in art school, I don't know um, if I can really quickly <laughs> describe this. In, in a lot of creativity-related fields, we have kind of admiring genius kind of mindset. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I admired him in a way um, he's just such a different species, you know? So <laughs> although I admired him, uh, that did not empower me, in, uh, enabled me, motivated me to build things like, like him. And then in my first PhD summer, I watched a YouTube video named Kinetic Paper Horse, which is totally developed by a random person um, and using certain kits. But it really hit me in a way that that paper horse was based on the Theoian's mechanism, but built that walker using paper. And when I saw the model, because it was made of paper, I felt like I can make things like this. Mm -hmm. And that's where I started and realizing that, oh, when I build things using paper that can empower people, make people feel like we can also build things like that. So that's where I started for myself. And on the way, I started inviting beginner designers. That's excellent. It's both taking the personal experience and then using that for building out. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, Nathan, your topic, low thrust optimization in cislunar and translunar space. What was your thesis about? Sure, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So... The low thrust part, people might wonder, you know, why do we want low thrust? That's right, you want to get there. <laughs> yeah, there's um, technology called electric propulsion, and basically, instead of using a chemical reaction to create a energetic rocket plume that propels you in the opposite direction, you now use, for example, solar panels, or in the future, perhaps a nuclear reactor or something could be on board that generates a lot of electricity and we use that to ionize a gas and then accelerate it through an electromagnetic field and generate thrust that way. So you have these ions shooting out. Why is that any better? Right. So the big advantage is that they shoot out about 10 times faster than a rocket plume, which means that for the same change in your spacecraft velocity, 
at any moment, you only need one-tenth the amount of propellant. So it, it adds up quickly. It actually grows exponentially, the fuel savings. Um, but the downside is that the force generated by such a system is only equal to about the weight of a piece of paper. It's very small. So it's fast but weak. Yeah. Ah, so that's a little different from what we are used to seeing of these rockets lifting off with these fiery plumes and everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the advantage of this is it can ultimately go faster. Yeah, ultimately. Well, faster is, means a lot of different things in space. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so maybe at the Earth, if you're leaving for Mars, you need to get going very fast. But as you travel further and further away from that starting point, you actually will slow down over time. So your position and velocity are intertwined. And we like to use a measure of your change in velocity for the duration of the mission as how capable you are at maneuvering. Your thesis was talking about this electropropulsion, mm -hmm. but there are also issues to do with the difference of it versus chemical and trajectory planning and corrections. Can you go into that? Right, yeah. So traditionally, if we have a chemical rocket, we can generate this huge thrust. And in terms of the mission lifetime, the thruster turns on just for an instant. You know, maybe in reality it's a few minutes or even a few hours, but out of a lifetime of years, that's nothing. So uh, the big difference with electric propulsion is that we have to have the thruster on for a large portion of the lifetime, maybe even weeks or months or years at a time. So during that, you travel a long ways. And like I said, your position and velocity are intertwined. So you have to keep adjusting the direction of your thruster as you go. So currently, with chemical propulsion systems, you use them, you coast for a while, you check your trajectory, oh, I'm off a little bit, you do another big thrust, adjust, and you're now going in the right direction, and you may do that every however often you need to do. Mm -hmm. But you're talking about a constant, mostly, thrust. Right. So you're having to yeah. make these corrections all the time. Yeah, and so that's what introduces a lot of challenges and kind of motivates the work that I've been doing is rather than just you know planning a few instantaneous maneuvers now we have to plan this continuously variable thrust and if we need to make a correction to that it becomes more complicated and there's always errors that accumulate so maybe you mounted the thruster half a degree off or no, know, never <laughs> a millimeter off to the side uh, so then what we do actually in my research is we build this very capable model that can adjust the trajectory in response to those errors. And is this something that the calculations are done on the ground, or are you going to make the spacecraft smart enough to do it itself? So the goal is that we would make the spacecraft smart enough. Right now, they're not really there. But using a technology called neural networks, which uh, was kind of a buzzword in a lot of, you know, your Facebook and Google, those kind of companies are using it a lot. Basically, we use that to approximately solve a problem on board the spacecraft. Uh, at least that's the, the concept. We're working towards that. So you do a lot of number crunching on some big computers on the ground and upload a small data set, and the satellite can evaluate its model on, on board. So a bunch of constant little corrections. It's actually a much more human way of moving anyway. You know, when 
when we're going somewhere, we don't say, okay, I'm going to go directly in this direction, and you go for a mile, and then you go, oh, I'm, I'm off by this much, and you then make one correction. You're constantly exactly. making the little exactly. adjustments. Uh -huh. Or if you're in a city you haven't been before, you're always asking people, you know, every block, which way is the museum or something. Exactly. Good analogy. So you want to get the spacecraft to be able to do that. And it matters, again, you were talking about if the thrusters are off in their mounting just a millimeter, mm -hmm. That'll make a difference if you're constantly thrusting on that off angle. Yeah, just like this tiny thrust over time adds up to a huge maneuvering capacity. Also, a tiny error will add up over time, and that can be really unpredictable. Uh, and we need to be able to account for that along the trajectory. And you say this is in your title for cis lunar and translunar space, meaning? So basically, that just means around the Earth and the Moon. And that's an area that's getting a lot of attention recently from NASA. There are some plans to put this um, deep space gateway into orbit near the moon uh, that would kind of take advantage of being close to the Earth, close to the moon, close to really anywhere that you could use it as a uh, launching point in space to go into anywhere else in deeper space. All right. Well, thank you for that explanation. I now understand the title. That's great. Thank you. If you just joined us, you are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker, and I'm here with three graduating graduate students. We've already met Yun Juo, Nathan Parrish, and next we have Diana Perry. Welcome to the show, Diana. Thank you. So let's see. Um, your title was... I have it right here, Swedish Seagrass Ecosystems in a Changing Climate, Coastal Connectivity, and Global Change Sensitivity. Does that sound good? That sounds pretty good. So what does it mean? So I am looking at the seagrass ecosystem. Seagrass is a true grass that has evolved to be able to tolerate marine conditions. The reason for studying seagrass is because it's an incredibly important coastal habitat in that it is a juvenile nursery for a lot of fish species and other species as well. Um, some of the fish are both ecologically and economically important species. So what I want to understand through my PhD research is how is this habitat connected to other coastal habitats and deep sea environments? And then in addition to that, what's happening in the system now and what can we expect in the future as the climate changes? Do you have an idea of what to expect for change in these ecosystems? I assume maybe in your thesis you're doing some modeling or assumptions about that? So I've done some laboratory studies, actually, to look at how the system might be affected by temperature changes, um, heat shock specifically. We are expecting both an increase in sea surface temperature as well as increased severe storm events in the future. So I wanted to understand how those might influence the seagrass ecosystem. But on top of that, the oceans are absorbing CO2 from the atmosphere, meaning that as they sort of mitigate some of the atmospheric increases in temperature, it changes the, the oceans themselves. And we're seeing that through something that's called ocean acidification. And this is influencing the entire oceans. So through my research, I looked at, as I mentioned already, heat shocks, uh, storm events, and ocean acidification. I tried to understand how all of these three in combination are affecting the system. And what have you found out so far? 
the outlook is not great. Um, so interestingly, and maybe not so surprisingly, if you look at these changes individually, maybe it's negative, maybe it's positive, maybe it's a neutral um, effect. But in combination, it's always a deleterious effect to all of the trophic levels, from the seagrass to the shrimp to the fish that I looked at. Why Swedish seagrass? Is it a specially sensitive one? Um, yes, though that isn't why. <laughs> um, I am in graduate school there, so I, I'm doing my research there. But yes, the Swedish system has been affected both through eutrophication, which means nutrients from land leaching into the oceans, um, as well as overfishing. And so this system is already influenced by anthropogenic changes. And then we need to understand what's happening in the future as well. So is this something that was a topic you were interested in before grad school? Or did you meet a professor and that this was sounded like a great idea? <laughs> I didn't know anything about seagrass before <laughs> starting my master's, um, which was also at Stockholm University. And there I met my current supervisor when taking a course. And uh, the supervisor, they were studying these type of seagrasses or this type of change? Yeah, so he's studying seagrasses all over the world and how they are influencing and being influenced by fish and, and other environments. And you said this is at Stockholm University. Yes. So you're the, you're the non-CU person here, but you're familiar with CU. How does being a grad student in Stockholm versus Boulder, what is the difference? I think the most striking difference is the Swedish emphasis on a real work-life balance. Oh, um, that's nice. I think that that is not very typical in American graduate and, students. And school. how does that manifest itself? In what examples? I think working hours are less. Um, in addition to that, pay is better. Uh <laughs> Sorry about that. Here <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. Um, but there's also more of an emphasis on the importance of taking time for your family if you have a family. That's wonderful having that balance. Yes. Hyunju, uh, was there something when you were a kid? You said you were interested in art. Mm -hmm. Did you ever imagine mixing art and engineering as a kid? <laughs> No way, but <laughs> <laughs> engineering uh, at the at the time of me, um, I thought engineering is very far from my field, which was art. But looking back, I think engineering has been always part of art medium, and I realized it during my graduate study. So once I when I realized it, it was actually not that <laughs> crazy idea, right? <laughs> well, good. It's it, it's great. And and the Atlas Institute, mm -hmm. what is that again exactly? So the Atlas stands for Alliance for Technology, Learning, and Society. So if I just explain my language, <laughs> it's more of, um, how can I say that? We study, build, and use technology in a variety of um, innovative and non-traditional ways. So that field definitely includes art, design, music, uh, all STEAM education, science, um, you know, you name it, right? No, that, that's <laughs> great to have that integrated approach. And I sure. think your thesis is actually a nice example of that <laughs> between art and engineering. Uh, 
Nathan, is is grad school what you expected? You know, when you <laughs> went in going, I'm going to go to grad school. Um, I think mostly, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I got into it because I love my fields and I wanted to keep learning more about it. And it's enabled me to do that. So in that sense, yeah, it has been pretty close to my expectations. Was flight dynamics the kind of thing you thought you wanted to get into when you came here? Yeah, so when I was doing my undergrad, which is also in aerospace engineering, there was one class which was my favorite, it was astrodynamics. And turns out that class was taught by my advisor uh, who came to see you. So I followed in her footsteps and came here <laughs> as well. Ah, very good. Well, uh, just for the last minute here, I just want to go down the line to find out what are you going to do after you graduate? Now, Nathan, you you defended four days ago. That's right. Yeah. It was smooth and easy, right? Um, well, I, it, it was stressful, but it... it <laughs> at at that point, you know so. more than anyone else. You just have to believe that. Yeah. But Diana and uh, Hyunju, you haven't graduated yet, coming maybe in the fall. So, that's um, the hope. That's the hope. <laughs> so maybe you do or don't know what you're going to do afterwards. Um, so, uh, Diana, let's start with you. Do you know what you're going to do after you graduate and become Dr. Perry? Yeah. Assuming I do graduate and become Dr. Perry, um, <laughs> I don't know yet. I, I am interested in pursuing a postdoc, so continuing with research. Uh, we'll see if that is a possibility or not. All right. Well, thank you. And Nathan? So I'll be staying here in Boulder. There's a startup company called Advanced Space and uh, formed basically because of the university. It's just a natural place for relationships to build and people to collaborate on space technologies. So I'll get to apply uh, the kind of things I've been working on to some real upcoming projects. Excellent. And Hyunju? Actually, I very recently confirmed my position there. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm going to join um, Georgia Tech as an assistant professor. Excellent. Well, congratulations to you all, uh, or pre-congratulations. <laughs> and thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. We have been talking with Hyunju Oh, Nathan Parrish, and Diana Perry, all of whom will soon be receiving their PhDs this year, or will be crossing the stage in just a few days. And they shared with us today the research behind their thesis work and a bit of a peek into the world of graduate school. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. But do you have questions? Do you have comments? You can call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.